0: I'm Stephen Price.
1: Hello, I'm Cara Githens.
0: This is The Innkeepers, a podcast by Sanctuary Inn. At Sanctuary Inn, we believe we are called to equip, refresh, and restore God's global workers.
1: On this podcast, we will be interviewing guests who have much to teach us about the many facets of missionary care. Let's learn together and be encouraged to press on in the work God has given each one of us to do.
0: So on today's podcast, we're going to interview uh, Dennis and Kasia Beck. Dennis and Kasia have served for 42 and 45 years, respectively, with um, what I knew as Campus Crusade for Christ, which now goes by the name of CRU. Their early ministry years were in Poland in the mid-70s and 80s. And now, if you remember, Poland in the 70s and 80s was a communist country, so you might wonder a couple of things. How? did they get permission to do ministry in a communist country? Or maybe the bigger question, why did they go to Poland under communism to do ministry? Well, we're going to let Dennis and Kasia answer those questions during our interview and hear more about their story.
1: Now, it's amazing. This story isn't just a story about doing student ministry in a communist country under some very hard circumstances. It's a story about marriage loss hope, and trust in the sovereignty of God. So I think when some people think about missions and missionaries, they think that when someone gives their life to God to serve in cross-cultural missions, God gives them special blessings, and they are spared from the ordinary things in life and the heartbreaking things that life can
0: bring our way. You know, in today's interview, you may hear some things that challenge your preconceived notions about missionary life. But I'm going, to let, I'm going to let Dennis and Kasha tell their story today. I know what you will hear is a story of God's sovereignty, faithfulness, and care. So we'd like to welcome Dennis and Kasha back to the Innkeepers podcast today. Dennis and Kasha have served with crew. Um Many of you know is now the name of what was Campus Crusade since the mid-70s. Many of their years of ministry were in Poland They've also lived in Budapest and currently when they're not locked down by COVID-19 restrictions, they're traveling and ministering in Central and Eastern Europe with family life, a ministry of crew.
1: So Dennis and Kasha, welcome to the Innkeepers Podcast. And thank you for being agreeing to be on our show today. And, and I you just want
0: Yeah, we're glad that you guys are here. I just wanted to let our listeners know that our family met your family in Budapest in the late nineties. We were busy doing youth ministry training and You guys were just living up the road from us and serving on staff with crew. We attended a church together and much to Dennis's chagrin, our families ate many a Sunday meal at the Burger King that was on the way home, which was never Dennis's first choice, but it was easy, it was quick, and the kids could run around and play outside. And I know our kids played by the hours on that playground. And um, when we visited each other in our homes, the kids really enjoyed playing with one another. Will you take a minute and just kind of introduce us to your family?
2: Sure. I guess I'll start. Um, We have three children. Um, All three of them are married, and our oldest is Kelly. Um, She and her husband, Matt, live in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and uh, where she works as a doctor, a family practice doctor, and we have our first grandbaby about oh, seven yay. months ago yay. so um and then <clears throat> jeff and his wife uh kelly or casey we call her uh live here in ohio where we are and uh he works in um medical and coding so again medicine and then our son brian and his wife carissa are in fridley minnesota and um he works uh as an office manager in a mental health clinic. So we're still waiting on kids, wow. uh, <laughs> grandkids, uh, but we're excited to have our first grandchild too. That's yeah, exciting. There's
0: a strong medical theme going
2: there. There is, there is, yeah.
1: Wow, must make family Thanksgiving meals a little interesting.
2: <laughs> definitely, definitely, yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> yes.
1: So um, can you share with us about your ministry in Poland in the 70s and 80s? um how each of you got there and um why did you go there and you know how was it even possible to do ministry in poland at that time
2: maybe i'll start first since i uh, was the first to move there Um, well it uh, for me it started i was actually a student uh doing a senior year abroad in vienna austria and traveled to poland and at that time god just put a prayer burden for poland Hmm. Um, on my heart, uh, but little did I know that a few years later, after I came on staff with Campus Crusade, that he would open the door to actually move there. And I had been praying for several years, specifically for Poland, um, but obviously uh, we couldn't go as missionaries. And yet the call was very strong. And uh, at 25 years of age, or right before I turned 25. Um, I was able to move to Poland as a student. Mm. Um, I applied through um, the Department of Education and I didn't speak any Polish but went and spent about um, a year and a half in formal language learning Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then went right into uh, the University of Warsaw um, where I was to study I actually applied to study Polish history. So that's, that's the formal way that, that we went to Poland, but the beauty of it was um, I was a student as well. Yeah, so it was You great. really
1: were learning.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, I went to classes and, and had a dorm room and uh, what a great way to interact with students and just way of life, um, sharing Christ and uh, having Bible studies, seeing students come to know the Lord, so um, it was, in in real essence, it was student to student during that time. So I, mm-hmm. I'm, before that, both Dennis and I had traveled to Poland, um, and worked in Polish youth camps, at different times um, in southern Poland. Uh, I started there in 1976. Traveling in, um, there there was a, a huge uh, Catholic youth movement that was going on, Mm -hmm. and uh, we were invited, Campus Crusade was invited by a Catholic priest uh, to come in because he said, you Protestants really know the Bible better, and what our students need is the gospel. Come and teach us us how to show the students um, how how they can know Christ, and uh, teach us how to share the gospel. Hmm. So we were able to do that every summer uh, wow. in these camps where thousands of students went through these summer camps.
3: Yeah. That's,
0: what
1: an open door. It yeah, was.
3: That's great. My journey started when I was actually a professor at Cal Poly State University, and that's where I met Campus Crusade as their faculty advisor and so forth, taught there. And um, in my third year, I heard about this hush-hush project into Poland in the summers working in these youth camps hmm. so I went in 79 and um, then I came and led the project um, the next year in 1980 along with another staff member and because um, I was an associate staff member at that point of Campus Crusade which meant I was volunteering I wasn't earning a paycheck because um, okay. obviously I had income from elsewhere but um, In the 1980 is when I took 10 students from my campus, along with many other people from around the country, and we went into various Eastern European countries, but most of my students from Cal Poly went to Poland. And um, that's when I saw the power of faculty member having students and actually working with them. And um, one of the interpreters in our camp in 79, Mm -hmm. was a a woman named Eva, was invited to come to the United States in 1981. And this is when I got married in 1981, not to Kasha, but you'll hear that story later, is that she, Eva came to us to be trained at Cal Poly. Hmm. And my first wife, Betty, trained her. And Hmm. it was during February of 1982 when Eva said to me, Dennis, what's keeping you from coming to my country? Wow. When I began to think about it I realized somebody else could be teaching at Cal Poly Mm -hmm. and um, but perhaps I was trained enough to be able to you know go in for a period of time go into Poland. Mm -hmm. So in 1982 shortly thereafter that that question I felt led to well I had an encounter with God Mm -hmm. um, in my office one Saturday or Sunday writing a test and it Mm -hmm. was forever life-changing the call came and it was very clear and um, I was already tenured I had already mm. been promoted wow a professor there was no earthly reason um, to leave but God had very clearly intervened and said go mm. wow. so I showed up in Poland in 1983 in wow. June and yeah. um, that's when Betty and I first met Kasia
0: so okay all right well thank you and i um kasha i was just thinking when you were talking about there being a student and living in the dorms and so how did the were the other students kind of eager like they're interested like you were a novelty in some respects i mean here you are a westerner in poland under communism which is most people would want to be in america you know and and um so did they kind of enjoy helping you with language kind of enjoy asking you questions and learning about life in the West?
2: Um, I, I think they were curious. Um, mm-hmm many of them wondered just that very thing. Why are you here? Because I mean, yeah. they all wanted to go to the West. Yeah. But I told them that, you know, I had visited um, Poland back in uh, 1975 and uh, just fell in love with the Polish people. Mm. And when I said mm. that, they go, oh, OK. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, um, yeah there there are people who have a very um, love for their country mm. and uh, they are a very warm people. And, uh, so yeah, somehow that made sense to them. Hi. So, okay. um, it, then it was like, okay, I get it. And, yeah. but it was really hard to explain to them any, you know, we, we also had talked about, we would not talk about anything political. Uh uh-huh. So it, it wasn't really a comparison type of a thing, but I would tell them cause I grew up on a farm. So we would talk about, what the difference in farming was in America and and in Poland, but then we'd also talk about the similarities, and that's where you could really get in the gospel that um, mm-hmm. people had the same basic needs and the same basic desires, and and um, and that's where we needed a spiritual solution to our mm-hmm. problems.
0: Oh well, it sounds like it created a great open door for you. Definitely. So um, Dennis has alluded to kind of a, um, the next part of our our story or the next part of our conversation here, and um, so Dennis and Kasha, just I'm gonna let you sort of tell the story now from the early '80s up to 1990, and um, this is the part of the story that we really want our listeners to hear today, and we want them to hear about God's love and faithfulness and God's sovereignty. That's kind of the theme that we keep coming back to in this podcast is the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. So you guys have an interesting story to tell, and we're just going to sit back and let you guys talk for a few minutes and we'll try not to interrupt. And we just want to hear this story.
2: Well, I'll maybe start out in the sense that I had been in, in um, Warsaw for several years. And in 1983, I was asked to move to Krakow to help with the the new campus ministry there that was going on. And that was the exact year that Dennis and Betty had moved there. And obviously, for me, being uh, a single woman, um, very far away from home, it was really um, a gift to me that they opened up their home and um, treated me like a member of the family. And when each of the Children came along, Kelly first, and, and then Jeff, uh, Kelly in 85, and Jeff in 88. Um, they, they called me, in Polish, they called me their, their auntie. And so, um, and I could come holidays. I, when I was through in the dorms, at that point, I, I lived off campus. I could drop by and have supper with them. I mean, I was just part of the family, and that met such a need as a single woman in my life so and Betty and I became really close friends um, when we would have staff meetings, or Dennis and I, who were um, were leading the ministry, and she spent a lot of time with the kids um, I would say well let's let 's have the meeting in the kitchen so that Betty could be a part of it and because she she was so um, involved and so excited about what we were doing so we were, we were a close-knit team.
3: I think one of the highlights of that period was actually we were asked um, to, con- to ha- invite Josh McDowell, if anybody knows him, yeah, yeah. To come and actually do a three-night series in Krakow, Poland. I, was very, I hosted him when I was at Cal Poly twice. So, uh, you know, I knew that what he was capable of doing and everything else. And so I was placed in charge of that along with another Polish uh, pastor. And the incredible things that happened during communist period was that we actually, he recorded 13 of his messages in the Polish television studio. And we wow. had staff there. I mean, we had students and everything else attending in this. A live uh, the, audience. Because yeah. it was kind of and I mean it was going against the big threat of the communists mm-hmm. communist there which was the Roman Catholic church second thing was he he did speak those three nights and it, it was an incredible experience it was the first time he'd ever done that series in a communist country and it was just really changed my life as far as seeing god work and um, believing But uh, at one point, the secret police had on the radio, they were looking for me because I had dressed up along with another one of my student disciples in masks, carrying um, sandwich sandwich boards, boards uh, advertising. (laughs) And we would go stealthily into the dorms and little uh, pieces of paper under the dorm rooms. But it created quite an interest.
2: And we had 2,000 students to follow up after those meetings. More than we could handle. Yeah, a little revival. It, well, it was, but that was a really, you know, the great blessing before a lot of hardship came.
3: So I think with the real question you're really boiling up to is that we we still did ministry as one third of our time. Our assignment was you spend one third of your time in your cover because all of us had covers. Yeah, I was actually been invited to teach horticulture there for a while and then gravitated over to working on a doctoral um, work. was all my cover. I always enjoyed the fact that when I was teaching, I was being paid by the Communist Party to teach there (laughs) as a missionary. And of course, they had to have known, but, um, you know, it was just the ironies were incredible. But um so one third of your time in cover, one third of your time in ministry, and the other third of your time was just existing because you can imagine for even the most simple things, all our food was on ration cards and it wasn't just being rationed that was the insult. It was then you had to go stand in line or multiple lines to get that food on those ration cards. So we learned to live, you know, in a different way. And um, you know, actually Uh, profoundly affected us um, all the years because we learned to understand what others go through and we were also the simplicities of life
0: yeah you were there and you were very much identifying with them in in almost every respect because um, you were living under their system you were living under their laws and having to subsist and exist just like they were
2: yeah and i um Right before Dennis and Betty had arrived, actually, it was in December 13th, 1981, when the Solidarity Trade Union movement was um, brutally crushed and martial law was declared, which means all civil law was suspended and only military law was in place. And many people dis- disappeared off the streets. Some of our students wow. um, were just picked up off the streets and put in prison. And um, so we we feel that very deeply, and um, December 13th will always be a very um, meaningful date. We, we relate so deeply with the Polish people in that those who lived through that, it, it was a life-changing experience. So we really did um, identify with them and with their struggles, and, um, you know, the... I think I learned so much from the Poles as well, of how to rejoice in in the simple things in life, how to enjoy one another, and uh, some of our deepest friendships were forged during those years.
3: Plus the political humor, it was the best, it
2: was the best. That's that's the equivalent of a
3: Polish joke. They made the
2: best political jokes that you could imagine. (laughs) I mean, yeah. So.
0: So let's just kind of, so you've made reference to in 81 and just that what is what at that point was kind of the beginnings of what might have been a change but it was crushed now if let's fast forward a few years to 89 and um 89 and 90 and then just from your perspective as being there in the country talk a little bit about the changing political climate and then we're going to come back to your story here in just a second
2: well um things were slowly um, changing, the resistance movement did not really die away. And uh, Lech Wałęsa, who was the leader of the Solidarity Movement and others, actually had what, what is known in Poland as the round table discussions with the the Polish authorities in um, in June of 89. And that led to the very first Free elections where non-communist. non-communist party, the actual, I guess you would call it the Solidarity Party, were allowed a certain percentage of seats in the same, or which is the equivalent to the Polish Parliament. Mm-hmm. So uh, the very first free elections were held, and uh, that was revolutionary. And then in um, the fall of that year, that's when other countries, the Wall, the Berlin Wall. Came down in November of that year, and um, Hungary cut the wires. Actually, it was of the between them and Austria yeah. in I believe August or September of that year. Yeah. Uh, Ceausescu was outed in and mm-hmm. murdered actually in yeah. December. Right, yeah, eighty nine. So it, it was that um, incredible change in the country, but still. The very same people, uh, even though change had come down on the local levels, the very same people were running the local offices, and the police were the same. So it really took a long time for actual change uh-huh. to take place. But um, but by 1990, um, yeah, change was was in the air for wow. sure.
1: What a time yeah. to be there in that country! That would have been mind blowing in some ways. Yeah.
0: I know. Definitely. We had we had a staff member dr- in Romania during the fall of Ceausescu, and he has some actually very harrowing stories from that time, but it was crazy.
2: It was a, a very unique time, for sure.
0: Amazing. Well, um, let's jump back to the family story. Uh, Dennis, you were in Krakow teaching and working on your doctoral research, and um, Betty had traveled to the States with your two children, Kelly and Jeff, and then um, just let's pick up the story from Betty's return back to Poland.
3: Well, on the morning of July 6th, she returned um, right into Warsaw. I had driven five hours during the middle of the night from Krakow to Warsaw to pick them up around eight o'clock in the morning. And the first words Betty said to me is, I don't feel good. And so I said, that's fine. Let's get the kids in the car, in the back seat, and, um, and then uh, you just lay down in my lap and I'll drive home. So everybody was sleeping. Everything was fine. Got home. We went out for just a, a quick bite to eat at a local joint, came home, and um I was actually out talking to two of our student leaders who had come to my house. Again, nobody had phones back then except us and a few others, but nobody could call you to set up an appointment. You just showed up. So these two guys um, showed up. I'm out talking just in the, outside in the, before the front door. And uh, all of a sudden, my um, little five-year-old now, she just turned five the week before, comes running to me, Daddy, Daddy, is Mommy joking? She's laying on the floor. And I said, no, I'm sure she's not joking. And and I excused myself, walked into the house. And on the table was Jeff, who was a day shy of two. And she had been changing his diapers. And um, she was just laying on the floor already, ashen gray and, you know, so forth. And fought back, obviously, the temptation to think she's dead. I checked for breath, uh, air out of her nose, checked her pulse nothing, nothing, nothing. And um, so then, wouldn't you know it, this three-day period is when the phones didn't work. And I had one of the few phones in Krakow. I couldn't call the ambulance or anybody else to do it. So what did I do? I picked her up, tried to. She weighed all of 105 pounds and we used to do a lot of jitter bugging and I used to throw her all around me. But <laughs> darn if I could pick her up. Mm. At 105 pounds of dead weight, literally. And um, Mm. I took her out to the car, had to lay her down in the grass because I had to back the car out of an extremely tight tar paper type of covering garage. Put her in the car. The two guys got on the back seat as we were trying to drive to the... um,
2: And the kids were with the upstairs landlady.
3: Oh, okay. And uh, then on my way, I checked her again, she was in the front seat with me and I just checked for pulse, checked her breathing, nothing. I said to the guys, check it, they wouldn't do it. And I said, okay, that's it. And I just, three blocks away from my house was the Milizia station. Two months earlier, they'd ca- started calling themselves Polizia. So that was part of the fall of the wall was the new name change, same people, Yeah. two the three, um, officers I talked to were drunk. I could smell the vodka on their breath. I asked, can you go down and check? You know, is she dead? Because I think she is. Yes, so forth, so forth. I happened to go back to the car because they told me to get the documents and I happened to just reach across her belly because she was still in the car and I felt the money belt. She had still had the money belt with all of our U.S. dollar cash and And so forth and all these kind of things on her. And I quickly just kind of slipped it off of her and stashed it. But anyway, the point is the two guys were there. They were my witnesses because the police had been manhandling me thinking I'd killed her. Mm. So obviously that was not the case. And um, I was released. And then the next day, five policemen, actually, I was surprised it took an extra day. They came the next day to check over the house. They saw, you know, a little bit of blood on the floor, which was from the drainage out of her ear. And, um, you know, this type of thing, they checked all the medicine cabinets, thinking that, you know, maybe some drugs and whatever else. And basically that began a process with the district attorney to make sure that, anyway, that's a whole story in itself. But um, the, um, so that's, my life changed. The next morning, about 3, 3.30 in the morning, because at that time of the year on the very eastern side of the time zone in Poland, the sun comes up and, um, you know, I'm out walking the streets in the rain and um, having a little conversation with God and um, mm. wanting to make sure that uh, I understood whatever this was about. Right. And I came away with two things. One, I knew God was still sovereign behind everything that happened. I didn't understand it. And I didn't understand why I had to go through it because my mother had died at the age of 39. And my father, basically the same age as me is going through the same thing. And I'm at 37 at this time, 38, I guess. Uh And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, do I have to go through the same thing he did? And, um, but I had a different tact because I knew God was sovereign and I had to count on that multiple times in the next month or so. Uh, And that's, the part of the story why i would love to you know unpack for people is that god is still good in the midst of death hmm. yeah so
1: so betty can you just clarify because i've never heard this story before so betty she had an aneurysm or something do you, do you even know what caused it
3: well they did an autopsy but of course at that time in 1990 the word deep vein thrombosis was not known Uh, or at least was not published, or not in the, um, you know, common uh, vernacular, uh, but we think now that that was definitely what had happened, is blood clots, by sitting on the plane all night, Uh not moving, and so forth, the clots, which she had a tendency to do, even though she was pencil thin, she... the clots went to her lungs and okay. therefore she had that very quick um death of lack of lack of oxygen and so forth um, hmm. so i'm sure that's what it is but th- i have no proof but if you want to read the autopsy i've got a wonderful 13 page in polish in um, polish yeah
1: yeah i'll pass i just yeah. i was just i'm sure you all wondered what you know what had happened like how is it this is possible that just like just so quickly she's gone so yeah. I'm sure there are questions for, for all of you. And it's and so hard and sad that you were in that political environment where you, every action you took was questioned um, so deeply. So that too has got to have been scary.
0: Um, after the stop at the police station, did you go on to the hospital? Was that no, eventually? No, no.
3: That- they wouldn't let me go anywhere. They oh, okay. took me in the back room. And yeah. that's when different things happened to me. Yeah. So,
0: OK. Yeah, back rooms, communism, kind of, yeah, those.
3: Uh, It wasn't that drastic. They didn't screw me up or anything. But I'm just saying that, you know, the old tactics and the old ways of dealing with things physically and so forth were.
0: Yeah, it was. Hadn't changed. Hadn't changed. That's right. So if my math is right, um, Dennis, you and Betty had been married for nine years. You had two children and you were deep in ministry in Poland together. Um, Betty had just returned from that uh, time in the States, and now um, you guys, uh, you and the kids, traveled back to the States. And um, I'm assuming then Betty's body was transported back to the States and there was a memorial service for her so that people could Mm -hmm. gather and mourn with you. And uh, so just kind of tell us a little bit about that time being back in the States uh, and just the sudden shock and surprise everything having unfolded like it did?
3: We uh, got on a plane, actually the old Pan Am, and in the bottom of the plane was Betty's body. The kids were there along with another couple that had been asked to travel with me back to the States. Got back to the States and wouldn't you know it, we arrive in New York. The eeriest thing was my daughter says to me, Daddy, that was the same stewardess on our flight the day mommy died. Wow. you know and this is when you're just you know in transit in a in a in a big old airport like uh john F. kennedy yeah and so we went up to her and sure enough she recognized kelly and you know we told the story what had happened and to betty and all that but it was just like wow that's interesting wow. i mean, went on we buried her in omaha and um then uh Um, had the service there in the same church where we'd been married, all that kind of thing. And then uh, I went out to um, California and did two memorial services there, both in San Luis Obispo and then also in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, so that was, you know, interesting. Of course, everybody expected me to come back to the States at that point. And, um, you know, you obviously, you've got to come back. You know, my poor mother-in-law at the time, you know, well, those kids need a, you know, need a mother. And I said, mom, don't put that on me or yourself because they won't get a mother until I know I need a wife. And that's too soon. Mm, yeah. But I had the experience of watching my father go through it. And uh, I just remembered things happening to him that I just said, I just hope I don't have to go through all of that mm. type of stuff that he did. And, um, and so I had the benefit of watching him go through it. He said a couple things. One that's germane to today, he said, everything turns out for the best. And the second thing he did say that is also germane now that I think about it was that whatever you do in that first year, don't make any drastic decisions, mm-hmm. you know, big changes. Yeah. So exactly a month after Betty dies, so about two two and a half weeks after um um her internment in uh in omaha, I'm in California and um i uh get a phone call. I had actually been five hours away from my kids in San Bernardino at campus Crusades then headquarters yeah and uh I, it was my first time to begin thinking, what's next? What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And I got a call on that Sunday morning, and I'm only away for three days, but I get this call from somebody I've never met. It's a doctor. And he says, "If basically, Dennis, if your son, your two-year-old son doesn't respond here in the next 20 minutes, we're going to have to put him in the hospital. He's got asthma. And okay. can you believe it? Yeah. I get off the phone well i said to the doctor i said does this mean i need to come home now i mean can i i can't even believe i said that but it was just the honesty that came as a result of death there's just no filters
1: yeah
3: and um which by the way i don't know if you're going to say anything about this but there is that article that campus crusade did um on our family that obviously it's a pdf but it journeys that whole year after i uh after Betty's death, but I say that I come back to um, well. I actually the doctor and I hang up with each other, and I just scream in the hotel room of the Campus Crusade thing. God, you cannot take Jeffrey's life too. Yeah. About thirty seconds, forty seconds later, all of a sudden I'm finding myself out loud saying, "Oh yes, you can," wow. because God, you're sovereign. Even though I don't understand it, I don't want it. But I have to believe that you still are sovereign. I'm going to cling to that. Mm -hmm. And that, my friends, was the lowest point I've ever experienced, was the Mm -hmm. thought I was going to lose my son as well. So I go back to San Luis Obispo. All this is recorded in that article and some of the pictures and so forth. And uh, I get back, spend the hot night in the hospital. It's his third night in the hospital, and I'm just going... Uh, I've never been so low. And I came home and said to our good friend who was watching uh, the kids for those three days, and I said to Robin, I said, Robin, I now can understand how some parents can actually kill themselves and their children to end the pain. And She thought at first, maybe I'm communicating something. And I said, no, 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 Robin, I'm not there, but I know how low I still can go Wow. before i've gotten to my low point in my life and that's one of the nice blessings of this is that things keep coming at us as a family and so forth but it's never as low as that so i again the depth of pain and difficulties can be a marker to us one god is still sovereign too it can get worse but it can't get too bad and um, that's part of the 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 take home for me. Mm-hmm. So um,
1: so you walked through a really deep valley during that time of incredible pain and loss. Yet it sounds like you, deep in the core of your being, still knew God was sovereign and clung to that. Yep. To give you hope. Because it's, you know, when you were looking at your circumstances, it felt like there was no hope. But yep. That's an amazing, I mean, that, that the rootedness of your faith and God that carried you through.
3: Well, I'm no perfect person for sure. No. I've got plenty of scars. You spend 15 minutes with me and you'll see them. But no, the, no, the point- not, a,
1: not to, it's the goodness of our God that that he is that yeah. trustworthy.
0: Yeah.
3: Absolutely.
1: Wow.
0: So at, um, after the time in the States, which included the the trauma of sorts and just the sadness and heartache of actually um, the memorial services that you had, the three different services, um, the episode with the asthma and how scary and just heart-wrenching that was. Um, then I think you probably surprised a lot of people by um, getting back on the plane and heading back to Poland with with two small children, and I think that probably shocked a lot of people.
3: Yeah, um, you know there are a lot of decisions I guess I've made in life that people think I'm crazy. When I left the university, they all thought I was crazy. I couldn't tell them where I was going and all this kind of stuff. I became yeah. Mr. Mystery. Yeah. And yeah. Um, there, but it was like, just as God called me to Poland, he hadn't released me from going back to Poland. And I just right. found myself saying, I just want to go home.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah. Home had become Poland. Right. And therefore it was like, I'll go back for a year and figure it out what's next yeah and there's probably
1: stability for the kids too to go back and be in poland again because that's what they knew
3: well either way no matter what we were going to do life was going to change whether i stayed in the states or went back to poland there was more familiarity for everybody back in poland than there was obviously in some place in um in uh, the united states so right uh, but it took an awful lot of effort just to pick up the phone and try to make reservations with Pan Am for the return. I mean, it's yeah. just it's like the energy level, the concentration, you know, is obviously not there. So it just, that's what had to happen. So I got on the plane with the two kids and the photographer from, you know, the magazine because yeah. they were chronicling my life. And I would agreed to do that um, yeah. for a year. In we there. will.
0: Uh, I will make an effort to to track all the links to that down and um, link that in with the podcast too, so people can see that. Because when I actually read through that again and saw the pictures, and it's just moving to see uh, the images from some of the images that were recorded from that year.
1: Yeah. So, so you got on. So you made it back to Poland and. Uh... Tasha, you were there, and had you seen them since they had left? Like, that was all a whirlwind, I'm I'm guessing.
2: Yeah, actually, I was in the States um, raising support or deputation that summer. Um, And so I got a phone call, actually, from um, a colleague in Vienna who was on our team uh, telling me of Betty's death, and it was just so surreal. I mean, here was... You know one of the people i felt closest to and it, it was just surreal and i um was at home in minnesota um, yes. my sister's wedding actually and then um the next morning i got in a car and drove down to omaha for the um the viewing and or the visitation and uh and the funeral so i was able to be at the funeral and and you know um, it's true that funerals aren't for the dead, funerals are for the living. And it, it was something that we we needed, we all needed for some kind of closure and to be together. Um, but I saw obviously how um, hard it was going to be for Dennis. And so realizing the kids were actually in a difficult situation too, because their dad wasn't able to be himself, have the same energy level, focus and with the grief he was going through. So I said, would it be helpful, since I know the kids so well, if I stayed for a few days and you could do whatever you needed to do with, you know, official documents and things, and, and I'll I'll just babysit. And I was staying with a family friend. Um, and so I'd go over every day to, it was actually, they were staying at Betty's um, mom's, and I'd take the kids and we'd go to the park or we'd, you know, go for a walk or a playground is do something with them and uh, it was therapeutic for me just to love on them gave Dennis a few days um and I you know bring him back for supper and um just kind of helped everybody there wasn't the commotion of of two kids around and and the kids were having some fun uh-huh but i remember one conversation as Dennis took me back to where I was staying, um, one evening and he said, I need to talk. I go, okay. And so I don't know, we had a cup of coffee or something. And, and he said,
3: village in, we were having pie yeah, and coffee. Yeah. yeah.
2: Anyway, he said, I just want to know that, you know, our relationship can't be as it is, has been before. And I'm thinking, what is he talking about? Um, and, and he just said, well, it's just because, you know, now I'm single and you're single. And I'm thinking, I've always been single. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, <you> know. <laughs> wasn't
3: very tactful. I had no filters.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, But he was trying to figure out, you know, that this felt weird. So all of a sudden for me, I was thinking, okay, not only did I lose Betty, but now I'm going to lose Dennis as a friend. Yeah. And so I'm saying things like, well, can I come and visit the kids? I mean, you know, I just didn't know what was going on. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, and then he goes, well, yeah, but you know, but, but we just can't be like friends like we were before. And, uh, you know, so that again, I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm losing even more. And, uh, you know, the reality dawns on you. Yeah. Things are changing. So I, when I went back to Poland, um, I actually wasn't surprised that he came back because it it was home, it was home for all of us. Mm -hmm. And that's where our support system was, our friends, our life. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that time, I'd actually um, just moved to Warsaw and my ministry was more to travel to each of the campuses Mm -hmm. and supervise. And so that meant that I could travel also to Krakow. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll go back a little bit. As I was dealing with my own grief, um, I visited with a, a very wise friend of mine, uh, Nay Bailey, who's also on staff with Campus Crusade, and I just said, I, I just don't know how I'm supposed to be in this situation. How do I respond? And she said something very wise. She said, when people are grieving, Oftentimes, their friends don't know what to say. They don't know how to act. They don't know how to be around them because they're uncomfortable. Therefore, they retreat. So the most important thing that you could do is just be there. Mm -hmm. And I said, but he said, we can't be really friends anymore. And she said, what people need most when they're grieving is that their friends are around them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so in a sense, she was saying, yeah, but he needs everyone who has been his friend not to desert him and to no. be there. Okay. So I took that to heart. And every time I would take a trip to Krakow, mm-hmm. I would call up and say, hey, I'm in town. Um, can I take Kelly bike riding on Saturday or can I take the kids to the park? Uh huh. And he'd say, Sure. And then he started saying, Well, why don't you come on over for pancake breakfast on Saturday before you go? Sure, I'll do that. And what I saw is he, people literally, because they were uncomfortable didn't with being and didn't know what to do with someone who ha- was in such grief yeah. and had experienced such loss, he was being abandoned. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I said, well, would it be helpful if you just had someone to talk to, I can call you on the phone. And so I began calling him also on the phone. Um, Just literally, I listened. That's Mm -hmm. all I did because he just needed to verbalize. Mm -hmm. And um, and people were afraid of saying the wrong thing. And so they avoided him. Yeah.
0: So they, they didn't say anything at all.
2: They, they, they didn't even come because they felt they had to say something. Whereas if someone is grieving, um, they just need you to be there. Okay. Uh, Not even, you don't have to say anything, just be there. And, um, and so with the wisdom of what my friend had said, I moved into that situation instead of feeling fearful and backing away and leaving him, um, isolated. Mm-hmm.
3: The two most common things we've, and we've spoken on this many times, is two of the most common things that happen is people are afraid to say something because they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing. Right. Yeah, probably will say the wrong thing. I've got to tell you, the funniest story was at the funeral. Right after it, I'm walking out in the parking lot and somebody I don't even know about my age said, Dennis, I know how you feel. And I said, really? Did you lose your wife? No, I left my, I lost my dog. Whoa. And I go, oh, yes, you do understand, was my comment. The grace of God was incredible in my life. I mean, you know, at that point, yeah. just could speak that way instead of chewing his head off. Yeah. And, um, you know, so the point is, is that that has been a part of it is that you, people are gonna say the craziest things, but it's okay. Yeah. Better to say something than nothing. Okay, and the other part of it is that they just um, um, they don't know what to say. Yeah, so they feel the awkward silence, and they avoid you. But that's what Kasha was just saying. Better your presence, and we call it now the ministry of presence. When you go to a grieving situation, is practice the ministry of presence. It's not about what you say; it's just about being and um, and saying and being there, and so. it's, it's very powerful, and um, so it just happens. So it increased the loneliness in sense going back to Poland, right? Because uh, the Poles were younger than me; yeah. they hadn't experienced this. They didn't know what to do. The Americans that were there, they didn't know what to do. I mean, you know, it just it happens. But it would have happened in California, and it would have happened probably even more so in Oregon. Right. That's, a, that's a former Californian speaking to Oregon. Yes. So.
0: Well, if you had stayed in the States, there would have been um, so many adjustments, um, of finding a new home and settling in, and uh, like you said, settling in around people that really didn't know you. You were back in Poland, at least people did know you. The kids had a sense of familiarity, and um, so I think those kinds of things Uh, although maybe some people didn't understand those choices, were probably the best choices for your family.
2: And Kelly went to uh, kindergarten, Polish kindergarten. So she had friends and she, you know, it was, Mm -hmm. and yeah, she went a half day to kindergarten and, uh, and Dennis had uh, a lady come in for a half day to take care of Jeff every day, a Polish lady. Yeah. And, uh, And then things were cheap in Poland. So even had a taxi driver, come and get Kelly to take her to kindergarten every
0: day. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah those um, kinds of things. So You that had a
1: support system do. in yeah. some ways. that was already set up in Poland. Mm-hmm. So, that's, so that first year was just kind of unpacking the story. It sounds like your friendship too. you. You were, Kasia, you were able to be there for Dennis because. Yeah, that
3: was totally platonic, you yeah. know, yeah. at least for the first six months. And all of a sudden I woke up one day and I thought, my goodness, she truly is my best friend now. I mean, it's like, and then all of a sudden I opened my eyes even further, but I never talked about it on the tapes that I was recording for this magazine article. Yeah. I was pretty careful to just kind of not go there about too much, about my feelings in this area as they started to grow. And um, so anyway, it was about friendship. And as I say to her all the time, I you're just my favorite companion. But... Um, She's also, you know, a very dear friend and, and of course, everything else that goes with that. So,
0: well, tell us a little more of the story from 1991 then, because you're kind of intimating at uh, moving, uh, you know, a change in the storyline here. So um, just share a little bit more about that story.
3: Okay, so Betty died in July of 90 and now Fast forward, um, it's the springtime in 91, and um, my friends, one of the friends, he's the, actually the uh, president of Denver Seminary, but anyway, one of my good friends, Mark Young, and his wife Priscilla were good friends with Betty and me. And so they they were the ones saying, let's go skiing together. It would be good for you to get away, and, and uh, some others. And so we went out for this usual skiing holiday, you know, usually in February's and Kasha and all the single ladies were off in some other place and these marrieds with kids had their places and so forth. And so for four of the five days, I'm sitting having cabin fever with two squirrely kids, you know, and it was like, I don't want to be here. (laughs) I'd rather be home because I have everything normal here. This is terrible. But I was able to convince somebody to watch the kids. I think it was the youngs um, for one day and we went skiing, um, Kasia yeah, and I did.
2: Go skiing with him that day.
3: Yeah. And so we went up on the mountain and basically I just said, I, I know it's going to take you a while, but I'm ready to talk about the future. And you know that I am committing to that. So it came fast, a lot faster than I would have expected. But it was that turning point of realizing she was my best friend and we've known each other for years. She knew Betty, that was important to me. She knew Poland, which was that experience in my life, all these things that had just checked off. And all of a sudden I woke up one day and realized it was her. Mm-hmm. And um, But I knew she needed some time because she was very active in the ministry, um, had a lot of leadership, had a lot of you know commitments as a single person at her age, everything to work through all of a sudden, it's one thing to take on two kids, but it's it's even harder to take on somebody like me, which is really her oldest third child. And um so she you know, it took her a while, about two months. So and what was uh,
1: that like for you, Kasha, when he said that on that ski trip?
2: Well um, yeah I mean you're sitting on top of the Alps you know <laughs> and, and um, all of a sudden he's talking and Dennis is a verbal processor so I was used to him verbally processing and all of a sudden he says you know I know I could live without you but um, I also know I don't want to and I go what do you mean <laughs>
0: what? I said
2: that <laughs> <laughs> and um, and 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 he, so, you know, as we talk further, I realized, you know, he was actually talking about marriage sometime in the future. And I said, well, I, I wow, I need, he said, it's okay, I, I can wait, I'll wait up till two years, you know, I'm thinking,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I go,
2: wow. And I thought, okay, this sort of turns our relationship in a different direction. But I also realized um, that he too was, you know, in terms of, of men, he he was like my best friend, mm-hmm. and so I. Um, but I did have a lot of questions in my mind, yeah, and and I wanted to hear from the Lord. So basically, I just began to pray, and um, continue, you know, our conversations, and I continued my ministry and my travels. But I prayed fervently, and I also began to dig in the scriptures for some of the. the questions and asking the Lord to lead me. Hmm. And over that that period of time, um, every single question that I had, God just began to answer it. And he even brought back to mind um, something um, that I had said to one of our Polish staff women. We'd gone on a walk and she was at that point, you know, in her late 20s, I was in my late 30s. And she, you know, they look up to me and they'd say, well, it's just it's hard being single. Do you, you know, do you ever think you're going to get married? You know, cause they looked at me as somebody really old at that point. <laughs> and, and I remember saying, Hanya, um, you know, God knows that I'd like to get married someday. Um, but I know he's also called me to this ministry in Poland. So I need to leave that to the sovereignty of God. And, and I need to trust him with it because God is good and whatever he does will be good. But I can imagine him someday, God will lead me to some widower and, and I'll probably get married, you know, thinking someday when I move back to the States, you know, when I was 60 years old or something, (laughs) and then, but God brought that conversation back into my mind. And almost like he was saying, you see, it's sooner than what you thought it would be. Hmm. And, um, so there were just many ways that God confirmed to me. And I remember, uh, a trip down to Krakow and I knew I was going to tell Dennis that the Lord had really confirmed in my mind that, um, he was calling me, uh, to a new calling. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, to be his wife and the mother of his children. Mm. And, uh, I, I think he was kind of surprised that it came that early. <laughs> it was about two months after he had had said that, but uh, God was just very clear to me. And um, and we thought, you know, first of all, we we really we talked with our leadership. I don't know, this was probably April by this time, but we really didn't talk to people or tell people about it. Yeah, um, and prayed until we got to about a year from the time period that betty had died
3: right it was a polish custom to uh, wait a year and to be in mourning i wasn't going to walk around in black and um, wear a black armband but i was at least going to honor the culture in which i was in right yeah so
2: So, and and we decided actually um sooner was better than later not necessarily for our sake but for the children's sake
3: yeah Mm -hmm.
2: And so we literally landed in the US and
3: early July,
2: um, sometime in July. And um, so almost a day. year later. So a
0: year, almost a year later. Year later
2: it was about, it was about yeah. a little bit over a year later.
3: Yeah.
2: Got in the car and drove to Omaha because with
3: her mother and her sister, sister, the two kids and I in the car. Yeah. And we're driving down to Omaha and um, Betty's mom was actually going through some surgery at that very moment we arrived and we knew that and um, so we go into this hospital waiting room and here's all my supporters and a bunch of people that know Julie Duxbury and I'm walking in with all these extra women and they're wondering what in the heck are you doing I didn't say anything and they ushered me back to where Julie Duxbury was in the recovery room I go in and say, Mom, I want to talk to you about something. And she was still delirious a little yeah. bit, you know, from the, yeah. the medication. Yeah. And the yeah. hospital asked us, asked me to wheel her gurney up, up, the, um, up to her room. And um, so I got to do that. And that's when I told Mom, you know, that I was going to get married. And she goes, Great. Let's get the pastor in here right now. Let's do it
2: now in the hospital. (laughs) In
0: in the hospital, of course. Yeah, so
3: she was probably delirious, but uh, anyway, she was. it was just neat that she was so affirming because she'd already knew Kasha's parents, but she didn't necessarily know. Well, she'd met Kasha, but... uh,
2: Yeah, we had actually, Betty and I thought when we were such good friends, that we wanted our parents to get to know one another. So we had connected them. So that was right. just the Lord's providence as well.
0: Well, um, So then this, you
2: got married that summer?
1: I, 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 I didn't even know all the details. Yeah, you know yeah, all these no, details. No, no, you get the details. I, our listeners right. don't know. Yeah. So August 31st. We, we put a wedding August together in about five right. weeks.
0: Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, okay. So that's
1: a quick turnaround there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, that was nothing short of a whirlwind, I'm sure, putting that together. And um, so where was that wedding?
3: In Lund, Minnesota.
0: Minnesota, which is,
3: I call it a village, with about 100 people.
0: It's a, ham- a
3: hamlet. <laughs> yes, yeah, a hamlet. But what's interesting and uh, is that we got married on the 31st of August, uh-huh. and by the 14th, we were already had the children had been adopted by kasha in this little county and so forth they they actually the judge and our our attorney gave the judge the article that we've referred to that had just come out the week before okay gave it to the judge and the judge turned to the People there in the court and said, "Can we make this thing happen today instead of waiting six months to go through the procedure?" After he had interviewed Kelly and he had interviewed uh, me and so forth in the courtroom, so it was like God in was fourteen days.
0: Yeah, wow.
3: She got an adoption, and then uh, two days later, we're on a plane going back to Poland, and the kids are hers. I mean, it's just wow. like
1: wow. God went before God us. God was in that. Thing. Yeah. Wow, it's amazing.
0: And you return back to Poland and I'm sure there's a lot to tell there about getting back and arriving as a married couple and then just getting reintegrated back in the society and and the, your network of friends at that point. Um, wow, that I just imagine there's a lot happening there.
2: Yeah, I, I think um, we really actually, uh, in terms of first year, first few years of marriage, we feel like it went so smoothly. And part of that is because when you've been through hard times and difficulties, yeah. um, you don't worry about the little things. Yeah, uh, And so we felt like it was, it was all uphill from here. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and we really had, um, some great times those early years.
0: Mm-hmm. Great.
1: And then you had a third child, it sounds like. Brian
2: was born in 94. So we were married in 91 and Brian was born in March of 94. So uh, then there were three.
0: Then there were three. Yeah. 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 That's quite a story. It's an amazing story. And I hope when people hear this story, they they really hear that your heart and they hear the story of the marriage, the loss, the hope, and the trusting in the sovereignty of God, which is kind of the... Phrase we keep coming back to in this podcast. So as we kind of move towards wrapping things up, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Dennis a question, and, Ka- and then Kara's gonna ask Kasha the same question. And it's, it's Dennis. What do you want people to hear in this story today?
3: Well, I think unlike for many years, I wanted to believe that as a Christian, a life was going to be full of all sorts of positive things and uh, everything would go well if you walked uprightly with him
0: yeah
3: and that's a that's not the case the lord doesn't promise us that what he does promise is i'm going to be with you mm-hmm. all the time yeah and so he was and i would say the closest i've ever been to the lord was during that first year when i was all alone Without yeah. doubt, because I couldn't do anything without having conversation with him. My and, um, you know, between focus, what's the next thing the kids need? What's the next thing I need to do around the house? I mean, you know, it was just, there was just something special about that. But also that was tough. I'm not ready to want to go through that again. But I, at the same time, it, it was there. So God promises us, that what he's gonna give us is good. So I have to treat that even in death and the journey of grief and everything else, it's still good. Doesn't make it easy, doesn't make it lack of pain, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it does make it good. And that's where the hope comes from, is that someday or some period of time, things are gonna change, but the sovereignty part means that god still is in control of everything and that's what goes along with hope and um, and it actually is goes along with the goodness because mm-hmm. you know all of these things are promised yeah. but he didn't promise us just this life that was going to be without any problems and that's the thing i think well, i fell into the trap of thinking yeah and um you know, I'm every once in a while I have to catch myself on that too. It's not about my upright living or doing the right things, but it's God in his character that is really the important thing. And that comes back to his, his attributes. And one of those is his sovereignty. So. Great.
1: Thank you. So Kasha, what would you want our listeners to hear from your story today?
2: Well, um, I think for me and in my journey and all of this, um, First of all, it's always the right thing to say yes to God mm-hmm. um, through the difficulties. Um, when I think of going to Poland under under communism as a single woman, um, and when I think of the difficulties that we face, the losses, God is sovereign. But when we say yes to him, um, he does uh, promise to be with us mm-hmm. and to bring a blessing. Again, I, I think it's those hard times when we get the closest to the Lord. And um, it's the easiest to, easy times when we think we can handle it ourselves and then we can mess it up pretty badly too. Yeah. Um, so the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, and uh, the hope of God, we, we need to say yes to those things all the time. And, um, and he is true to who he says he is. Yeah.
1: Mm. He's faithful. Amen. Yeah. I think that's part of what I heard in your story is God's faithfulness to both of you and living in a communist country and living uh, with tremendous loss and all those things. You guys both continue to see God's faithfulness in your life. And that has been the bedrock
0: for you guys. Yeah. And I I think what I was hearing, too, is that um, you both made decisions at certain points in your life where other people certainly didn't understand. People didn't understand leaving a tenured professorship. People didn't understand probably as a single woman moving to a communist country to enroll in school um, and, you know, to do ministry that way. And, And so certainly there were a lot of things that people were probably very confused about. But you continued, like you said, you continued to say yes to God. You continued to follow and listen to his voice and do what he asked you to do. And and you saw his faithfulness um, every step.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your story. I have been super encouraged. So thank you. Um, And you've lived this. It's not just some story you made up. So it's sure had a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things you guys have had, had to process over the years, but I I pray that this will be an encouragement to our listeners, many who have walked their own journeys of struggle and suffering and on the mission field and off the mission field. And um, I'm, we're just hoping that they too will be encouraged to see God's faithfulness yeah. to them.
0: So Dennis and Kasia, we just want to really thank you for taking the time to be on the Innkeepers podcast with us today. And our prayer is that as people have listened to this story, today they'll hear about God's faithfulness, To his servants and his care for his servants and they'll just really be able to to rest in that and rest in that um trust just truly trust in god for his his sovereignty thank you again
2: well thank you for the opportunity
0: That was an amazing interview we had today with Dennis and Kasha, and I was just, um, I had heard part of the story before, but to hear the whole story, and you know, it was great. Tell me some of the things you heard today, Kara.
1: I was just really uh, encouraged by each of their walk with the Lord, as uh, God took both Dennis and Kasha to Poland for different reasons and different ways. They got there, you know, independent of each other, and then how Dennis lost his wife Betty and just that story and the how vulnerable he was with um just that loss and how mm. that affected him and being a single dad and wow, that is quite the story, but how God and his sovereignty and how he clung to God's sovereignty. Yeah. That was just yeah. amazing to me. And then and how God brought uh Dennis and Kasha together to um they both came to just a clear res- resolution on God's leading um, for yeah. their marriage. Yeah,
0: and if we're going to link to an, <clears throat> we're going to link to an article in the show notes that has the the photographs and so on from that year following um, Betty's death and when um, Dennis was being a single parent with the kids. And I'll tell you, it's just I don't think I would open myself up that vulnerable. But but at the same time, Dennis knew. And he sensed that God was doing something incredible, even in the midst of this loss and the suffering that they went through. And so, um, anyway, um, Dennis agreed to that. But, yeah, we'll link to that. And be sure and open that up and take a look at that because it's it tells the story in words and pictures, and it's very moving.
1: Yeah, and I was just super encouraged, just as we interviewed them, how um, they both just have built a life together since that loss and i what are they doing today we didn't get to clarify that
0: yeah well um since we have known them they were still on crusade staff in budapest when we knew them and our family was living in budapest too and then since then they transitioned and they're still with the crusade but it's um they're doing family life today which is uh, a marriage and family ministry that's uh um, part of Campus Crusade, or crew. I guess I need to learn to say that. Anyway, um, so they're traveling a lot in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and doing um, family, um, doing marriage seminars and family training, parenting kind of things. And so they've been doing that for the last several years and have had a very um, fruitful ministry doing that. Of course, everyone's locked down with COVID now, and so they are they can't uh, travel the remainder of. 2020, and so they're um, doing what they can from their home in Ohio now, and um, enjoying. I think being back, but probably definitely frustrated that they can't be there and doing the hands-on ministry.
1: Yeah, but God prepared them with this—the loss, and then the remarriage for Dennis and parenting, yeah. adopting children, like just all of that. That their mm-hmm. story just has. Um, God has uniquely placed them in a a position of influence on a lot of families and Mm -hmm. um, what an amazing gift for them to be able to have clung to God's grace and goodness in the midst of hardship and now be able to walk with other people who go through hard things because missionaries aren't exempt from pain and suffering and um, I think that's another thing that was just a good reminder with their story is that... Mm -hmm. Um, just because someone chooses to serve God in ministry or missions doesn't exclude us from the suffering of this world and the pain of this
0: world Mm
1: -hmm. Um, but God is still faithful
0: yeah and I think we heard that come through crystal clear in this that even in the midst of all this I mean Dennis knew God was with him in his pain and with him in all this in the confusion and misunderstanding and Oh, I just keep thinking back in my mind, the mental picture of him having lost Betty, traveling back to the States, having three memorial services, you know, bearing your wife of nine years, and then just trying to put your life back together and making that decision to return to Poland to do ministry. And, but how God was faithful and God sustained Dennis and sustained them as a family and, um, it was just oh, it's a very moving story, and I hope you just enjoyed that conversation.
1: Yeah, well, we hope you're encouraged, and um, that we would all remain faithful. Yeah, and trusting our God who is faithful.
0: Yeah, and if you find yourself in a situation or circumstance where you just feel overwhelmed, um, could you just email us at uh, Steve at Sanctuary Inn or cara at Sanctuary dot org and. Um, we're available we're available to listen we're available just to have a conversation online and or Or
1: help you find the resources, or help you you
0: find a resource for that for someone because we have we do have resources literally around the world people that we could um, connect you with that uh, could help you walk through a hard situation or hard circumstance yes
1: hey blessings on you
0: thank you very much and again we're This is Steve and Kara with The Innkeepers Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to The Innkeepers Podcast. Our mission at Sanctuary Inn is to equip, refresh, and restore God's global workers for kingdom purposes. We hope today's podcast was an encouragement to you, and maybe you were prompted to pass this along to someone you know that will benefit from today's conversation. Creating a podcast is a team effort. Kara and I prepare, and do the interviews, and we're grateful for the time that our guests give us out of their busy schedules to help us learn more about missionary care.
1: We also want to thank Tim Downing for the music that he wrote and performed specifically for the Innkeepers podcast. Tim is a very talented musician, and you can learn more about him and his work at downingkeys.com. Our podcast is edited by Javier Bolanos and is produced by Tim Cowley of Cowley Visuals. If you have media needs, including film, photography, or audio, you can reach Tim at cowleyvisuals.com.
0: Our website and show notes are prepared by Micah Gibbons, Kara's amazing husband. You can visit the Sanctuary Inn website and learn more about the ministry of Sanctuary Inn at sanctuaryinn.org. Thank you again for joining us on our journey to learn more about missionary care.
1: See you next time.